From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. number of moral dilemmas that we have in the contemporary world that aren't addressed in the ways that we experience them in the Bible. But there is something, there may be stories in the biblical text that rhyme. We will still find some things in that Bible that will speak to the same dilemmas or analogous dilemmas in the human condition today. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She's Associate Professor for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. Her scholarship is centered on womanist and African-American biblical interpretation and New Testament ethics. She co-chaired the Society of Biblical Literature's African-American Biblical Hermeneutics section from 2012 to 2017 and gives presentations on race, ethnicity, and Christian thought in a variety of academic church and business contexts. She's the author of A Former Jew, Paul and the Dialectics of Race, and Can White People Be Saved? Triangulating Race, Theology, and Mission. Professor Seacrest is a second career scholar. She previously worked as a senior manager in the aerospace industry at General Electric. Today we're talking about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. Professor Love Lazarus Seacrest, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So I just have to say at the outset, I loved this book. And it really (laughs) just expanded my thinking about so many things. And I'm eager to talk to you about it. But as a way of getting into that conversation, so that our listeners can follow along with us, there are some things we'll need to do in this first segment to set the stage. And so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about some of the core ideas that you set out in the beginning of this book. And then from there, in subsequent segments of the program, we'll go a little bit deeper in the conversation. And so to begin with, I want to ask you about something that I read there in your biography at the beginning, that you are working in womanist conversations around biblical interpretation. And I wonder if you can situate this term womanist and womanism for us so that my listeners are beginning to get a foundation for what we're going to be talking about. Yes, thanks, Dan, for the question. And again, thanks for having me. To begin with, womanist is analogous in some ways to the term feminist, one that we are more used to thinking about. It's about centering women's sensibilities, lived experiences when it comes to interpreting the biblical text, thinking about politics, thinking about theology, etc., But in this case, what differentiates womanism from feminism is that we're centering Black women's experiences. 
In the early feminist movement, it did not start off as intersectional. It's becoming more intersectional. And by intersectional, I mean that it's considering the intersection of various social identities, for instance, African-American and female and middle class and uh, highly educated, right? All of those identities intersect in certain ways. And so they influence the way we experience the world. So I am reading the Bible with womanist sensibilities. Womanist sensibilities prioritize the liberation of oppressed peoples, all oppressed peoples. We are particularly sensitive to intersectionality, thinking about the intersection of race and gender and sexuality are three dominant ones, but class as well, other kinds of ethnicities as well. So you'll see in my book, you'll see that I occasionally, while I'm centering African-American female experiences or African-American experiences, I also have been thinking about and have tried to educate myself about the sensibilities in other oppressed communities, trans women, the Latinx community, the Asian community, et cetera. So I think that's a good overview of womanism. It is practiced in many other fields. As I said, the definition of womanist thought started with the definition that Alice Walker gave a couple decades ago now. And so it's spread into many different disciplines. So thank you for that overview. And also thank you for gesturing towards Alice Walker there at the end of your answer. You do an extended look at what Alice Walker was laying out in terms of definitions in the introductory chapter to your book, Race and Rhyme. One of the things that you lift up there that I had never seen before was a kind of expanded definition. And some of the pieces that you bring in that Alice Walker lays out for us, one of them is womanish as opposed to girlish, as a way of saying that we're not doing frivolous things, but we're doing serious things. And womanish is a way of sort of of inhabiting a kind of fullness of experience that also has a deep history, even leading back to Old Testament thoughts of Moses and the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. So I wonder if you could just spend a moment and talk about this idea of seriousness in reading and how we might contrast with other ways of reading biblical texts. Yeah, thanks. I do want to say, first of all, that was a wonderful lifting up or contextualizing of the way that I'm using it. And I agree with everything that you said. You did you did that brilliantly. But one thing I would want to call attention to is that by contrasting womanish with girlish, right? And you get, did it just right where we're centering is on the, the experience, the seriousness of our endeavor, right? that we are taking on adult topics, but we are not by that means disregarding or trivializing the interests of Black girls, right? So I do talk about the experiences of Black girls and Black women. So I just wanted to clarify that a bit. Womanist thought, I think, emerged and as, as well as African-American thought from the context of liberation theology, right? So we were beginning with people like James Cone, right? who started off by rereading biblical texts, by centering the African-American experience, and by talking about how the Bible does emphasize key themes around the liberation of God's people from the realities of oppression. And from sin, I, I'm thinking especially now of that wonderful inaugural sermon in Luke's gospel, where Jesus talks about how he's been sent to liberate the oppressed and to set free the captives, right? That's a, at which many scholars take as his sort of programmatic idea for his ministry as presented in Luke Acts. So that's the key idea, I think, that womanists are talking about. Some of the values that we highlight 
in common with many others, but are central to the womanist idea is the idea of seeking liberation from oppression, trying to especially look at regimes of authority and hierarchy that many Black women think about. We are especially concerned with sexuality. There is in many more conservative churches, among them the Black church, but many other churches as well, that are gay and lesbian and queer and trans siblings who are sexual minorities are also very oppressed as well. And so we want to say all Black lives matter, for instance, right? We don't want to just stop at the ones that even a little bit less marginalized compared to others. So that's the key theme is that we are trying to think about class. We're, tr- we're trying to think intersectionally. And when it comes to reading the biblical text, there are other communities that are doing some of these as well. But Black female sensibilities are often among those that are erased the most, right? Like we are, uh, there's so few Black women in the Biblical Studies Guild, especially that we are intent upon trying to seek a word from the scriptures for our communities, especially for people who share the same kind of oppressions that we do. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. Today we're talking about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. Staying with this concept of womanism and womanist hermeneutics, you walk us through in that introductory chapter sort of several generations of womanist scholars, starting with Renita Weems and then leading us to Kelly Brown Douglas. And I want to ask about both, starting with Professor Weems. One of the things that Renita Weems says is we are not obligated to read all of the biblical texts, particularly if those texts are toxic or are in some way injurious to the reader. And I just want to linger for a moment on that because I think it might make some listeners stand up and say, what do you mean we're not supposed to read the entirety of the Bible? Why why would that ever be the case? So talk to us a little bit about that kind of serious reading that is so serious about the care of the reader that it might even say, and these texts are off limits. Yeah, that's so well said. I love the framing of your, that question. What Reverend Dr. Williams is trying to say there is that Womanist readers, womanist interpreters are trying to take seriously the effects that texts may have on all of the readers if they are not handled with care. And let's face it, there are some troubling texts in the Bible. The rape of the concubines, the rape of Dinah, there's a holy war, there's a conquest of other peoples where they're discussed as being completely annihilated and wiped out. There's what many see as as the condoning of the oppression of women, of a sort of everlasting idea of slavery, right? There are some troubling ideas in the Bible. And I think what Dr. Williams is trying to get at is something that most sensitive interpreters have known all along. I have read the Bible in three major corners of the Christian faith, right? Among evangelicals, spent most of my teaching life among the progressive edge of the evangelical movement. I've read it in mainline Protestant, most recently where I led a Presbyterian seminary in Atlanta, Georgia, 
And now I'm reading the Bible along with Catholics, right? An independent Catholic university. And in each reading community, what I have found is that each community has to deal with these troubling texts in a variety of ways. And I just want to submit that every reader has a canon within a canon. In other words, every reader has preferred text, even if they say that all of the texts are useful for instruction, practically speaking, everyone uses a subset of it. And Dr. Wings is just being very explicit about the text that she wants to privilege. She wants to privilege those that are liberatory. She wants to challenge, question, and reread. In other words, for new readings of, new retell the stories in more liberative ways. She wants to do that with texts that are troubling. She wants to deconstruct them to show how they are harmful when read and when uh, attempted to be lived out in contemporary life. And I agree. I completely agree with that same idea. One of the things that I'm trying to do a little differently in my book is rather than major in the deconstruction of texts, which all womanists, including myself, do. I wanted to focus on the liberationist ones. I wanted to take the texts that I think are most helpful in thinking about matters of race and race relations, while also critically examining them to make sure that we aren't, even with those helpful texts, introducing the possibility for moral harm by the ways that we are reading them. So I want to make sure that I've understood this correctly as we're moving towards our first break. So Renita Weems, Reverend Dr. Weems says, we all create a canon within a canon, and we all are choosing not to read certain texts and preferencing others. When you were saying this, the example that came to mind is I often get into conversations on social media around Romans chapter one, where certain traditionalist readers, and I'm scare quoting that, really want to read Romans chapter one in terms of the anti-fornication, anti-LGBTQ readings, but they stop the reading at the end of the chapter and refuse to go on to the very first line of Romans chapter two, but therefore you are you yourself are condemned by this same thing so they've bracketed a certain reading and they've not read something else now when i make that kind of of example am i understanding what you are meaning by the canon within the canon or would you say it in a different way i might choose a different text to to um to accept, I think I want to differentiate something a little bit more. I am saying that we all have a canon within a canon. That's an idea that is an inference of what Dr. Williams is saying. What Dr. Williams is saying is some texts are not worth reading at all. I am just saying that sentiment plays itself out with whether explicitly or implicitly in so many different corners of Christianity. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that what you are doing is is try to reread a problem part of the canon. And I think that is similar to what I'm talking about, but it has to do more with, let's not read a text like 1 Timothy 2, which says that women, or implies that women are intellectually inferior and they shouldn't have be able to teach men, et cetera, et cetera. Let's not read the conquest narrative, which has deeply problematic implications for thinking about it. And when nations have picked up that text and attempted to impose their ideas and their lifestyle on indigenous peoples with great harm, genocide as a result, that is the kind of thing that she's talking about, is that there are some texts that do great harm. Let's not read them at all. I'm just pointing out that move is one that's done effectively in really many, many corners, overwhelming majority corners of the Christian faith, among serious Bible readers. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She's Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. Today we're talking about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. Today we're talking about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. Well, one of the things that you do as a way of setting the stage in that first chapter of your book, Race and Rhyme, is you talk about another African-American womanist scholar, Kelly Brown Douglas, who has for a long time taught at Union Theological Seminary. And you, you introduce her thought in such a way that as we get to the very last question that she asks, you then say, this question that Professor Douglas has laid out for us opens up the pathway to understanding what I'm trying to do in my book. And I wonder if you could quickly walk us through just a precy of Kelly Brown Douglas's thought and how it sets up what you're doing here in your book, Race and Rhyme. Yes, I think we've touched on this already a little bit in the a, in a first segment by talking about the central value of seeking the liberation of all kinds of people in our theological work and our biblical interpretation. And that was the part of Kelly Brown's, Douglas's work that I found most captivating. It was the one that, it's not an either or. There's a choice that all writers and scholars make in terms of where they want to spend their time, in terms of the paths or trajectories that they want to pursue. And while um, I think it is extremely valuable for scholars to interrogate and to show the harms that various passages give, and I have done that myself in other works. One of the first womanist interpretation pieces I ever wrote was on examining the stereotypes in the book of Revelation for the female, negative female stereotypes in the book of Revelation. That's an important line of work. I do it myself. But in this book, I was captivated by Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas's emphasis on liberatory readings, right? But I, I wanted to focus especially on those where I had found them helpful and working with students and thinking about race and race relations. I wanted to focus on the liberatory readings. Um, and what I try to introduce in the balance of that chapter is a way to do that without slipping into any of the error, the theological or ethical moral harms that can be introduced by taking the Bible literally instead of seriously, right? To avoid literalist readings of the Bible, even with the texts that have been helpful. What I have attempted to do in that first chapter through all of the 
or most of the womanist scholars that I talk about, but especially Kelly Brown Douglas, is to show that this method that I'm introducing, it's a working with analogy. I call it associative hermeneutics by associating an idea or a situation in the Bible with a contemporary idea or situation in modern life. That associative hermeneutics or reasoning, analogical reasoning, reasoning by use of analogy is something that African-Americans have been doing for as long as they've been reading scripture and other communities as well. Lots of people use analogical reasoning in think and doing theology and doing biblical interpretation. But I, I use it particularly Kelly Brown Douglas's introduction of, of a common motif that you see in many womanist readings, and that's this idea of centering the experience of Howard Thurman's grandmother. Howard Thurman is a, a well-respected, a well-loved African-American spiritual leader who was deeply influential on Dr. Martin Luther King's thought as well. And he often talked about his grandmother and how his grandmother said that she wouldn't read the Apostle Paul if she ever had the chance to read it without having to worry about what the masters were saying on the plantation, right? And then Kelly Brown Douglas shows how her grandmother in a different generation does the same kind of thing, reads herself into the biblical story while weeding out what's harmful to her and what is liberational, liberatory for her. So I'm trying to show that the method that I'm introducing is not radically new in some sense, but it's a disciplined way of doing scriptural reasoning that has been done across the centuries, really. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're not saying, hey, I've got this fancy new way of reading the Bible. Rather, you're going back and mining this deep vein that has been used, as you've just pointed out, generationally, and you're giving it a kind of clear analysis and a title. So when you talk about associative hermeneutics or the way in which a biblical story will rhyme with a contemporary moment of oppression and possible liberation, you're not saying this is some novel way of reading. Rather, you're saying in generations of those who've come before me in the African-American reading traditions, this is the way that we have been doing it. And in doing it this way, we have created a space where we are not beholden to other people's readings, but rather we believe the Spirit is giving us space to read this ourselves. Now, all of these are my words, not yours. What have I got wrong and what have I got right? And how would you (laughs) say it differently? I think you're saying it really well. Really internalize what I'm trying to talk about. These ways of reading, this associative hermeneutics or analogical reasoning, I use both phrases and throughout the book. These are not brand new ways of doing it. My mother reads herself into the text. This happens in black pulpits on any given Sunday in any given African American congregation on any in any in many across many different denominations. Is that? We are reading ourselves into the text. We are living, we are uh, imagining ourselves as centered in the text, and we are drawing implications for or showing how our lives rhyme with the stories that are in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well. The only thing I am attempting to do is as I taught this method in for many years at Fuller Seminary, as I was writing this book, I I saw there were times where my students would inadvertently introduce a microaggression in their interpretation as they were doing this, or even something that was even very harmful. And I I learned how to give them limits, or I learned how to give them guideposts 
for avoiding harm, avoiding microaggressions or moral harm in their interpretations. And I eventually learned how to guide my students ever better the more I taught this particular course over the years and realized that I had essentially developed a discipline way of doing the kinds of readings that have been done by many people over the ages in terms of finding liberation in the Bible. So I was always centering women as values of liberation and freedom from oppression for all peoples. I was always doing that. And my students were doing that alongside me. But I was trying to find a way to keep us all from adding harm in the ways that we do that. For drawing some analogies that might be really unfortunate, likening slaves, masters to white people and slaves, right? You know, like that, picking up a text, like that's where you may want to listen to Renita Weems and let's not choose that text. That text is all kinds of historical problems in it and really ethical problems because even if the peoples of the Bible try to legislate slavery, we know that institution has created enormous moral harm in our society. And we confess today under the inspiration of God, that slavery is inhumane, is evil, and we will not countenance that. So I didn't want my students inadvertently using parts of the Bible to do this kind of thing, but I didn't want to shut off all parts of the Bible from them at all, right? I mean, it may be that they that with guidelines, with a disciplined way of doing this, they might be able to find ways that texts can be liberatory even when we don't imagine them. An example I use in that first chapter is doing a rereading of First Timothy 2 by showing that this text has done a lot of harm to women because it teaches that women should not teach or have authority over men, right? And that's been held up and has been very oppressive for women over the years. But I try to show how attention to the careful attention to the context that we do in biblical studies anyway And analogical reasoning can show that actually, if you use that text to try to get at it analogic, to to do a modern analog, it actually can be liberatory for women rather than oppressive. So I, I was trying to give them a method that would serve them well without beyond their seminary years, beyond the times that they were with me and they could teach others to do it as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. We're speaking today about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. So given what you just said about these guideposts, I want to draw that back to the context in which your practice of associative hermeneutics arises from the thought of Kelly Brown Douglas. And I'm thinking about that portion of the chapter where you're basically saying Kelly Brown Douglas is reminding us again and again that we have a moral responsibility to read these texts with the most vulnerable people that we can imagine in mind as the main characters. And if we keep that focus on the protection and the preservation of their dignity and their well-being, that we have a lens wherein we can be reading this correctly. So taking that idea from Kelly Brown Douglas into what you just said, those guideposts that you're saying are not designed, as I'm hearing you, to restrict the reading of these various students, but rather to give a space where you say, when you make the analogy you just made, you may not recognize it, but you are harming vulnerable people by the reading of that text. Now, when I make that kind of comparison and say that's the kind of guidepost you're putting in there, am I getting it or are you placing the guideposts with a different moral anchor in terms of reading? 
No, no, no. I, I think you've articulated it well. I, what I'm trying to say is let's ask questions about our selected analogy, right? If we think that there's something in the biblical text that is useful for our reflection by analogy with something that's happening today, let's make sure that we aren't introducing inadvertent harm by doing that. Let's examine the rest of the biblical text around it, for sure, for one thing, right? But these are the kinds of techniques for interpretation that are taught in seminaries across the country and across the world as well. So let's pay attention to the rest of the biblical context and make sure that there isn't something that could be twisted in an illiterative way, right? We want to make sure that, it, that there isn't something that we may be introducing that actually oppresses someone we haven't thought about or something that we haven't thought about. So I want to make sure that our readings are sensitive to the complexities of the biblical text. Likewise, I am asking us to be sensitive about the complexities and nuances in the contemporary situation as well. Those are the two big guideposts that I'm trying to introduce to students. Care with the biblical text and equal care with the contemporary problem. So that if we want to read a text like Acts 6, 1 to 6, the story of the Hellenistic widows, and I can say that for me and my students, we read this and we think, oh, this sounds a lot like affirmative action. Like we have the Hellenistic Jewish widows who are overlooked in the early church's food distribution, and we see that the disciples chose leaders to be in charge of the food distribution who share the social location of those Hellenistic Jewish widows. And that sounds a lot like affirmative action, right? That reminds us, that rhymes with uh, affirmative action. But there are other elements in that story that could be used to twist that rhyme into an oppressive nuance. For instance, there's a, a part in the text that said we made, they made sure that the people selected were full of the spirit, right? That they were leaders in good standing. And they, in other words, they were looking for certain qualifications. Now, looking for certain qualifications and leaders is not a bad thing. But that kind of thinking has been used to deprive communities of color with social benefits because uh, there was a lack of leadership or a lack of competence in that community that served to derail the liberatory or the liberative intent of the social program. So asking for equal care on both sides of our interpretation by looking at the ancient context very carefully, using all the tools of biblical that are taught in seminars and deep care, using all the tools available to us in the modern life, from politics, from sociology, from law, from a variety of other different philosophy, looking at all kinds of other different disciplines as we think about race relations problems. So to make sure that as we are lifting up a text from the Bible, that we are reading it with nuance, both for the ancient history and our own histories, our own context as well. Now, Professor Seacrest, you've just introduced in your answer this concept of rhyming, and it's right there also in the title of your book, Race and Rhyme. Now, listeners who have had some seminary training may have encountered the interpretive framework known as the chiasm. And for listeners who don't know this, there are certain stories like Genesis 37 through 50, the Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors story, where Joseph on one end of the story is going down, down, down. He's thrown down a well. He's put into a jail, all these sorts of things. 
things. On the other side of the story, he's going up, up, up. He's raised up into Potiphar's house, and then he's raised up into Pharaoh's house. So going down and coming up, you can say in that chiasm, that chiastic structure, it's got a kind of a rhyme on one side with the other. You're taking this into a slightly different direction, as I understand it. You're saying not just within the text we can see the rhymes and the chiasms of this story, but also if we look at contemporary events, things that are happening to us now or in our recent history, we can find other rhymes, other sort of chiastic structures between the biblical text and events that are happening now. Now, first of all, before we go any further, do I have that right or would you say it a different way? I would say it a different way. I think it's essentially right. What you've just described by talking about the rhyme that's implicit in a chiasm would be a micro example of a rhyme. I would also maintain that there is a meso, sort of a middle level as well. For instance, there are texts in the New Testament that rhyme with texts in the Old Testament. And very often, the New Testament writers themselves were explicitly doing that. They were lifting up a story from the Old Testament and reworking it so that it serves a new theological moment. I'm very familiar with how that's done in the book of Revelation over and over again. It takes these themes and ideas from the major prophets and reworks them for a new moment to talk about the Roman Empire versus the empires that those prophets were preaching about. So that would be sort of a meso level. Like, so within a text, as you were just talking about, within a particular different story, across the Testaments, across the books of the Bible, you can get that middle layer, that meso layer as well. But then there's a macro layer that I am trying to talk about in my book whereby I'm taking a story from the Bible and aligning it with a similar dynamics in stories or themes or concepts that exist in contemporary life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. Her scholarship is centered on womanist and African-American biblical interpretation and New Testament ethics. She co-chaired the Society of Biblical Literature's African-American Biblical Hermeneutics section from 2012 to 2017 and gives presentations on race, ethnicity, and Christian thought in a variety of academic church and business contexts. She's the author of A Former Jew, Paul and the Dialectics of Race, and Can White People Be Saved? Triangulating Race, Theology, and Mission. Today, we're speaking about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. We're speaking today about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. Before the break, you had lined out for us sort of 
scheme for understanding the different rhymes we might look at when we look at the New Testament. You, you talked about within the text, a kind of micro level of rhyming. And then you said that also the Bible is taking one book and rhyming it with another book. You gave the example of the Old Testament prophets being rhymed in the book of Revelation as a kind of meso level. And then you said there's also the macro level of rhyming where we can look at events that are depicted in the Old and New Testaments, and we can apply them to contemporary events that are happening today. This is the substance of what you're talking about in associative hermeneutics, where you are inviting students to go through a formal process of lining out on one side, let's call it on a sheet of paper if we draw a line down the middle, on one side of a sheet of paper they're analyzing the structure of the biblical story, and on the other side of the sheet of paper they are looking at contemporary events of either liberation or oppression, and they're asking the question, how can we map the one to the other in a way that opens up possibilities for us now? So what I loved about that when you showed us how to do that in the book itself, there are diagrams in that first chapter, and I'm aware that you, this is second career for you, and prior to this, you were working as a senior manager in the aerospace industry, and I looked at these and I thought, these are flowcharts. (laughs) These are ways of talking about process flow. And so I want to know about your thinking and how you drew that previous career and some of the skills that you had there into helping us see so clearly what's happening here in this process of associative hermeneutics. (laughs) So that's so funny that you noticed that. That's exactly what it is. Uh, With gratitude to a colleague at Columbia Seminary, Jake Myers, who made the suggestion, love, I think be really helpful to include a diagram. And so I went for the only kind of diagram that I knew well how to do for my background in computer science, which was a flowchart. And what I'm trying to show with those charts is that this is an iterative method. There is a simple mathematical formula that is actually associated with Aristotle about drawing analogies. And by using a mathematical formula, you can be fooled into thinking that the idea of finding analogies, analyzing them, coming up with them, is more precise than it actually is. It really does depend on judgment. And so I'm trying to show with those flow diagrams that it isn't that we have to iterate. We have to continually look at a text, think about whether it's a good fit for the particular problem we have in mind that we want to analyze. And we want to examine the details of the text. We want to ask some questions about whether there are ideas in the context of the passage that we're interested in that may introduce harm or that may make the fit not as well aligned analogically. It all comes from the presumption that if situations in the Bible can be lined up with situations in the contemporary world, then the God-pleasing responses to the situation that are in the biblical text may be a fruitful source from which to think about an analogy, an analogous response to a similar problem in the contemporary society. And so We have to iterate on this by looking at many details in the text, many details in our contemporary society, until we find a text that we think is suitable for use in thinking about the given question that we have in mind. And so that's the the two charts that I have right embedded in chapter one. I also thought you might have been referring to an appendix that I used. This is a, there's an appendix, one appendix that shows a table, a heuristic table that actually one of my teaching assistants that I acknowledge in the preface, Troy Kinney, was a wonderful teaching assistant for me at Fuller 
who I believe is still in education now. And he had a lovely way of helping students to lay out the details of the biblical text and to show exactly where they could draw sort of a straight line association between a character in the biblical text and an idea or a person or social group in the contemporary world and show how there was an alignment between the situation and the responses. That table was used as a heuristic device. In other words, it was a teaching tool to help students begin to cultivate the judgments of sensing where there is an alignment between a biblical story and a contemporary issue in race relations. Some students were really helped by that heuristic device. Others didn't need it at all. I required students to use it in their first assignment, but in their final assignments, they could dispense with them with it. Actually, I asked them to dispense with it because I wanted them to be freed from the constraints of that and didn't want to forced them to focus on maybe things that were harmful or didn't want them to, I wanted them to be focused and their own voices to emerge rather than the confines of this table. But both of those things are just attempts to model how those are the, the, the key questions I'm asking in both in the, in the method at large is, are there details in the text that are either helpful or harmful in drawing this analogy? And are there nuances in the contemporary situation that are maybe not addressed by the text and need to go, we need to go elsewhere. For instance, when I do the, in the opening chapter, when I talk about the analogy between Acts 6 and the distribution and the food distribution for the Hellenistic Jewish widows and the idea of affirmative action, I note that while that is a wonderful strategy for handling the simple discrimination that might have been happening in the story in Acts, that it is inadequate for handling the 400 year plus years of oppression for African Americans in the United States, that it doesn't address inherited and accumulated losses due to discrimination that African-Americans have. And I suggest that maybe that while this affirmative action is actually very conservative for that problem and that maybe a different kind of text, like what did God command the Egyptians to do to the, for the Israelites as they were on their way out of Egypt, they were instructed to take along the treasure of Egypt as compensation for the wages of their slavery. It's a, it's a way of thinking about the biblical concept of reparations is an idea that isn't in that simple act story and that we would need to think about as we are thinking about what our biblical imagination might be when it comes to thinking about responses to centuries of discrimination. So I've got two mental images here as I'm hearing that answer. One is a visualization of two wheels and you're moving the wheels so that you are finding the right combination of biblical story that would match contemporary issue. And it's not as simple as just going for the easy one or going for the traditional one. Sometimes we might need to take a traditional one and spin that other wheel a little bit to find a better biblical story to really match, as you're saying, with reparations. What that made me think of in terms of the second image is hip-hop culture and how it's so easy to mistake hip-hop culture for simply people just going up and saying whatever in their the first thing that comes to the top of their minds or the kind of simple rhyming structures from a like late 70s, early 80s hip hop, whereas someone like, forgive me, someone like MF Doom, who's got rhyming structures within rhyming structures and is bringing a complexity to the rhyming moment, when we're looking at something like that, 
we're looking at a real contemporary, very nuanced approach to a very subtle set of problems that have layers and layers of accumulation. The rhyming here is not Mary had a little lamb. The rhyming is much more intricate than that. When I make those comparisons, these are all just my off-the-cuff comparisons. Have I got it right? Would you take it in a different direction? How would you say it differently? Oh, I, I love those comparisons. I wish I had thought about the hip-hop analogy as well. That really would have been uh, really helpful. The idea that the central notion of rhyme is that I got was actually, I was inspired by, as I say in the book, a quotation that is often attributed to Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I wanted to take the notion of rhyme and to play with it a little bit, to to say, as you've talked about, that there's nuances, that there's that we sometimes need to turn the dial a little. And I kept using the idea of poetry as the dominant metaphor for the kind of rhyming that I'm talking about. We need poetic license to be able to draw from different arenas, to shift the image so that it's startling and presents the idea in a new way. And I think hip-hop would have been a wonderful way to get at that. I wish I thought of it. <laughs> Well, the, the other thing about hip hop is that it is really the first time that American audiences anyway really had to deal with sampling culture, which is taking the past and using it in new ways to create new atmospheres, new feelings. And I see a, a flavor of that as well going on in your way of approaching biblical texts here in your book, Race and Rhyme, where you're not taking the Bible and just flatly, traditionally bringing it into the contemporary context, but you're sampling it in a way that becomes useful for new contexts and in a way that new ears will perk up and hear that old beat but with a kind of fresh approach. And again, I'm making, I'm just doing off the cuff stuff here. But as I'm saying that, I'm seeing your reaction and hearing a bit of your reaction. It sounds like I'm on to something. Here. You're on to something. You are on to something. Though the other thing that I'd like to just to, to add to our conversation is that this method is one that I use for thinking through how the Bible can be helpful in thinking about race relations, social justice issues, privilege and disadvantage thinking about the marginalization of women, the marginalization of sexual minorities. So these are the topics that I have in mind as I use this method. But what my students were quick to see, and what is absolutely true, is that this is the method for doing biblical ethics as well on any topic, right? So that there are you can have it, you can think about the environmental question and select the texts that are helpful for thinking about the relationship between God and the creation and between humans and the rest of creation. You can take it for thinking about questions about violence, questions about war. You get like there are any number of moral dilemmas that we have in the contemporary world that aren't addressed in the ways that we experience them in the Bible. But there is something, there may be stories in the biblical text that rhyme with our contemporary concerns. Because the questions that we're asking are not going to be found in the stories of documents that are thousands of years old now. But in as much as the Bible addresses the human condition, we will still find some things in that Bible that will speak to the same dilemmas or analogous dilemmas in the human condition today. 
to me, this is the substance of what you said earlier in our conversation, where you're not reading the text literally. You're not saying the Bible speaks to my cell phone problem right now That's or right. our environmental yeah. problem, but instead you're reading it seriously. You're taking seriously that the Bible had a moral position on oppression. It had a moral position on environmental sustenance. It had a moral position on human relations, and we can use those moral positionings as a way of navigating our contemporary life with seriousness. Have I got it right or would you say it differently? No, that's absolutely right. It reminds me what you've just said, which is true to all of the things I'm trying to do in this book. But with a professor of mine that was deeply formative on me in graduate school, Richard Hayes, who talked about reading the Bible to cultivate a biblically shaped imagination, right? We're not actually trying to reproduce the actions in the biblical text and translate them word for word, action for action into a vastly different culture, right? Like you can't translate the culture that way, or at least you can't make a direct, draw a direct line between actions in the Bible and actions today. Our cultures are too different. But what we can do is have the Bible shape our magic so that we can learn what it is that's God-pleasing. What does What does justice look like? What does righteousness look like in the Bible? And how might we perform that same idea today? Well, I am trying to develop a a disciplined way of having that imagination cultivated and then interrogated to make sure that we aren't drawing direct lines in ways that are potentially harmful. What I love about this is throughout, you are giving the reader permission. And it's a very particular type of permission. And it's a permission that, if I may, is rooted in African-American traditions of hermeneutics. The whole notion of the African-American hermeneutics that you line out in the opening chapters of this book is they had to create a space where they believed that the Spirit could give them interpretations that were separate from the white interpretations, the oppressive interpretations that they were receiving, that there was another way that the Bible could speak. And so it, to quote one of my old teachers, Walter Brueggemann, this is the imagination of otherwise. This is the ability to look at a situation and prophetically say, but it could be otherwise. And what you're doing is you're mining these narratives and saying, where in these old stories can we find the otherwise? Where in these old stories can we find the possibility for us now so that what seems like the valley of the shadow of death is a table set before us? It's beautiful what you do. But as I'm saying these things, I'm wanting to make sure when I say it's an invitation, when I say it's, a, it's an opportunity for imagination, I think some listeners might get hesitant there and say, oh, I've got to do what my bishop says, or I've got to do what my pastor says. What do you say to a listener like that who feels afraid? of the invitation that you're offering? Yeah, that's a great question. I taught among people who took the Bible seriously. It's one of the things that made teaching among them such a joy, right? Because there were people who knew their Bibles and who did want to take them seriously and who wanted to have to live biblically shaped lives. So it was a real joy to teach among folks like that. And they were initially wary of some of the methods that I introduced as I was describing African-American or womanist or feminist or post-colonial hermeneutics. All of these readings, interpretive strategies that that care about the effect of the Bible, of the biblical stories. 
in contemporary life. And I tried to, to tell them that what these, all of these cultural reading strategies have in common with those in the evangelical world is that they too believe that the Bible matters for today. And on that point, I found that evangelical students would give these methods a second hearing because my intent, at least, as I, the reason that these methods were attractive to me was because of my deep interest in New Testament ethics. I wanted to know what claims does the, do the biblical stories have on us in shaping and helping us to imagine how our lives should be lived in a very different cultural moment, in a very different historical moment. And that is what I think that I share with my womanist interpreters. Mitzi Smith, I think she's probably one of the leading womanist New Testament scholars anywhere in the world today. When I was coming up in seminary, the word eisegesis, that is, whereas what we're taught to do normatively is exegesis to draw meaning out of a text, eisegesis was taught to us as a curse word, right? Woe be to anyone who would read into the texts, maybe their contemporary issues. That was a rule that's completely out of limits. And what Mitzi Smith argues in many of her works is that is, first of all, that's just unrealistic. That it that pretends as if anyone can bring to any text. They can read it in a completely disinterested way where their own culture, where their own experiences, where their own preferences have no effect at all with what they see that's important in the text. Everyone is, re- we are all, to quote Mitzi, always, we are all, always doing eisegesis. The thing that womanist interpreters are trying to do is to be explicit about what interests us, what questions we are bringing from our contemporary world to the reading of the text. And so it is such a, I think it's such a wonderfully informed way of doing biblical ethics, of thinking about biblical ethics, to bring to the text questions that the text doesn't have. These questions come from our own environment, but to bring them to the text and to think seriously about these things and what do we see in the text that can be helpful for that. So while I completely understand that, I think the questions that happen on both the left and the right, from the right to say that you're reading into the text, that's all that I've just been talking about, and the dangers of that. And I say, yeah, there may be dangers, but the idea of bringing modern questions to the text is what we're about, at least those of us who read theologically, with those of us who read with interests, the interests of Christian communities in mind for what we do. And so for those of us who are interested in Christian communities and real life, that's what we're doing all the time anyway. And from the left side, the left may say, yeah, but why are you reading the text at all? <laughs> right? These texts are so oppressive. They're so complicated. They've been complicit in some of the worst atrocities in human history. Why are you reading the text at all? And I say, well, they, they, they share in common. They talk about the human condition. And in as much as we can read the Bible as great literature, which surely is that, if it's nothing else, it's endured. It's been read by so many across the ages. It's worth reading for that. It's influenced so much of contemporary, our contemporary Western society that it's useful for finding the places where the text does imagine fruitful ways of living in ways that promote the justice, that center the marginalized, 
that focus on the poor and that lift up the poor, uh, the, the poor at heart and the poor in spirit and those in debtors' prisons as well. Well, Professor Love Lazarus Seacrest, I am constantly looking for books that will open my eyes to new ways of reading the Bible. And your book, Race and Rhyme, gave that to me in so many different ways. Every page, I found myself stopping and thinking about new possibilities, both for my own reading of the Bible, but also possibilities that I now want to share with my students when I teach them. I am so grateful you took the time to write this book, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it today with me and my listeners. Well, thank you so much for reading the book and for having me here. It's just been wonderful to to have this conversation with someone who seems to really get the project that I'm about in this book. Thanks so much. We've been speaking today with Love Lazarus Seacrest. She is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. She's the author of A Former Jew, Paul and the Dialectics of Race, and Can White People Be Saved? Triangulating Race, Theology, and Mission. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.